Carpenter's Way. It's good to see your faces again. Uh, I was watching a video last night. Give me a second here. I was watching a video, and this is uh, kind of a prominent Christian leader, I guess you'd call him. Like, you guys would probably recognize him. But anyway, he was talking about one of the problems with church and um, how we've grown up in this society. A lot of our kids have grown up where uh, the church kind of puts on a show, and, um, you know, they do a Bible study or do something like that, and they notice that none of the kids are singing. And he said one of the big issues is, like, when he goes to churches and he preaches or something, he notices that none of the people are singing. It's just like the show kind of thing. And so I'm just sitting there watching this video and thinking, like, that is so not Carpenter's Way. That is not us at all. And so I've, I've told you guys before, and I'll say it again, 
I know you guys come in, you get used to sitting in your normal seat, like this is my spot, and if somebody's there, you get a little mad. But I would definitely encourage you, at some point, just come sit on the first couple rows at some point, because, yeah, no, yeah, get here with Pam. But like just hearing the people behind you sing, it's, uh, it's really cool, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's really cool just to listen to y'all sing. And so, yeah, I was very encouraged just to listen to that video. I wanted to let y'all know that, man, you guys can sing. I don't know if you can sing, but you do. Here we go. <laughs> In this time of desperation, when all we know is doubt and fear, there is only one foundation. We believe, we believe in this broken generation. And all is dark, you help us see. There is only one salvation, we believe, we believe, well, let's sing it out, we believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, when He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered hell. We believe in the resurrection. Oh, when He's coming back again, we believe. Amen. Let our faith be more than Greater than the songs we sing In our weakness and temptations We believe We believe We believe
given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered hell. We believe in the resurrection. Oh, and He's coming back again. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Oh, and He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered hell. We believe in the resurrection. Oh, and He's coming back again. We Help. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's my victor. He's my King. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. My sins are held against me. Amen. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. He's my victor. He's my King. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. My sins are held against me. And praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, He's my victor. He's and praise the Lord, oh praise the Lord, my sins are held against me, and praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh he's my victor, he's In God alone, salvation comes from Him. He is my rock, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Everybody will stand if they can and we'll sing. We'll not sing. We're not going to sing. We're going <laughs> to say scripture. Sing every time. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault.
you would look at us and you would see us with all of our failures and shortcomings and you would say I love you not just I love you but I want you to be a part of my family God it blows us away I ask Lord that that would never get old it would never get old of us hearing Lord that you adopted us you brought us into your family you saw fit to make us holy and blameless in your sight we thank you we praise you Lord just open our heart open our ears to hear what you have to say this morning Jesus name amen Good morning, church. Good morning. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's always fun when people actually respond back to the good morning, so that's great. Thank you. Appreciate that. And you guys really do sound good when you sing, too. It's awesome. Love it. Uh, I have one quick announcement for you uh, this morning. Our Family Con, Family Conference, is coming up next Sunday. And uh, so just wanted to remind you of that. There's still time for you to sign up. There's a a poster out there with a QR code, and you can go uh, just put your camera on that, and it'll take you directly to the registration. However, for those that have signed up already, uh, we're going to do a drawing this morning. So for the families who have already signed up, uh, they get a chance at winning free admission to our family con, and also... $100 $100 gift card to Chick-fil-A. Ooh, that's a lot of Jesus chicken right there. Man. So if you don't know what FamilyCon is all about, let me just explain very quickly. This is about uh, families, students and parents, teenagers and their parents, uh, experiencing discipleship and worship together. Uh, it's about turning the hearts of our parents and teenagers toward one another Uh, And we're going to have a special guest speaker to help uh, lead us through all of that. His name is Dr. Richard Ross. He's been doing uh, ministry for youth ministry for longer than I've been alive, I believe. So he is fantastic. And so you don't want to miss this. But to help us draw this morning, I'm going to ask Pastor Mark to come on over. And uh, somebody give us a drum roll with your feet. Very nice. Who we got? The Torres family. All right. Hooray, hooray. All right. So uh, see me after uh, at 11 o'clock and you'll get your uh, gift cards, Torres family. And uh, yeah, let's all have a fun morning worshiping God through studying his word. $100 at Chick-fil-A. That'll get you like two meals and a lemonade. (laughs) 
Tell you what, it may be God's chicken, but it ain't sheep, is it? No, that. That is awesome. So um, that's next Sunday, and you can still sign up. And, uh, you know, this emphasis uh, is on discipleship, and we talk a lot about the parents, uh, even when we baptize, we, if, uh, we encourage the fathers to baptize their kids because they are the pastor of the family if they know the Lord and are walking with God, and we talk a lot about discipling your own kids and you as the parents being the first line of defense, especially in the teen years, and this is for families of six through noon, uh, through noon, <laughs> six, six through graduation. I'm ready for chicken. Uh, that's right. That's Berkshire's. Uh, I'm thankful that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays, but I'll be darned if it'll keep me from eating out, right? So we got we to gotta encourage the unsaved as well. Uh, but I'm super, I'm just kidding, lighten up. But I'm, uh, I don't remember what I said. Oh, but this is an opportunity next week, families, to, to really learn what it means to, be disi- to disciple your children. So uh, I'm excited because during the Sunday morning service, we're going to have our normal service, but he'll be filling the pulpit uh, next Sunday, so we have an opportunity to support our student ministry. And there is stuff to glean if you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt and uncle, or if your kids are not in high school yet or junior high. Uh, Sunday morning will be about that, so we'll want to encourage you to be here for that. For those of you with students, in 6th through 12th grade, we encourage you to participate. And as we always say, if you can't afford this, we will make it happen for you. There's, there'll be scholarships available. But we want to do more than just encourage you to disciple your kids. We want to give you the tools to do that. And that's what next Sunday is all about next weekend. And Adam's put a lot of work into that and appreciate it. You know, I'm just so thankful for the staff the Lord gives us. Chad, it's nice to see you in worship this morning. I was, I was thinking as I was looking at those songs, you know, a lot of weeks... Most of the songs that we sing, and you guys know this, are Chad's, but I was realizing two of the songs this morning were from Ricky, Richie, Richie, Ricky, I don't know the guy personally, but Fike, which is Nancy's, help me, nephew. I mean, is this a musical family or what? And Nancy writes sketches and directs and stuff. This is a very emotional, ta- talented family. I'm just kidding. But seriously, that song, We Believe, moves my heart so much. And a, and a couple months ago, uh, when um, Josh Fergie was leading, Ferguson was leading, that's what we call Fergie, but when he was leading worship, he had us do the Apostles' Creed, had, had us read it together, and it freaked about half the church out because it used the word Catholic, which is Latin for unified. Uh, but it was so good, and you know, we just sang it this morning. What do we believe? We believe in God. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in, the, uh, in Jesus Christ coming and dying and rising from the dead uh, and saving us. That's what we believe. All the other stuff, and he's coming back. We don't want to forget that. And that's what we believe, and what an amazing thing to sing. And I got to tell you, I'm always up front. And this morning, you were really singing out. And it, it was, I think it was Sabrina that was encouraging you. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to put you in a cheer suit next week, and you're going to... No, you're, we're not going to do that, Sabrina. No, it was awesome. Isn't it great? I mean, when you're up front, it's like the, your hair can part in the back because you're singing so well. And it is, incredi- it is incredibly moving. And uh, so if you're sitting in the back, and I just want to side note, and you get frustrated that people are standing and you can't see, there's always room in the front rows. And you're welcome to join us, and I'll bring you coffee, and it's like the first class section. So uh, let's see. A couple other announcements I want to let you know. Uh, we are all political as a body of Christ because we are aliens and strangers. If I were to change the church name and I were king for the day, I would change it to the embassy because what we do in here is a small piece of the kingdom of heaven 
And whatever you vote out there, wherever you stand on political issues and world issues, in here we all agree on one thing and we just declared it. In the Trinity, in the sovereignty of God, in salvation through faith in Christ alone, those are the things we stand for. And so you'll notice that on the stage we don't have an American flag because we are not an American family. We are family whose father is the King of kings and Lord of lords and a kingly nation. Having said that, God has allowed us the privilege to live in this country that it gives us a vote, and we encourage you to vote. We're not going to tell you how to vote, but we do think you need to be involved. And uh, so with that said, I think this is the last time before the November election. If you have not registered to vote, I'm so thankful for Sharon. Her husband's in the hospital right now uh, with an infection in his feet, so be praying for Jim. But Sharon came this morning, and uh, if, you, if your address is wrong, if you need some correction uh, in your voting record or whatever, I don't think that's right. But if you need to talk to somebody about voting, if you've not registered, out in the foyer between, ser at, between services, between church and uh, Bible study, I would encourage you to be involved uh, because it does matter. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, other note, one other announcement. I just want to thank you for being involved in ministry in the church. I, I, uh, this is Pastor Appreciation Month, which I'd like to flip on his head and say, this is Congregation Appreciation Month. You know, you, you, you are studying God's Word and women's Bible study and men's, men's time out on Tuesdays and after church and before church. We have so many Bible studies going on, and each of those Bible studies are studying God's Word. That's what we're studying. And you are eating it up. And uh, the most encouraging thing that I experience as a pastor is listening to you sing and knowing that you're walking with God. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that from a spiritual point of view. I just... I just see how many of you are serving in the community, whether it's an official position at, at the Mosaic Center or Seasons of Hope, or, um, or whether you're just telling people about Jesus in your workplace or loving on folks. I see it all the time. And when I'm out in the community, people tell me, oh, I know somebody who goes to that church, and you know, they're very nice people. Sometimes they're, they're grumpy. I say, well, we're just redeemed. You know? <laughs> but seriously, I, I just want you to know that um, your walk with God is so encouraging to me. Not as encouraging as a trip to the Holy Land for my wife and I, but <laughs> totally kidding. This morning, I just was really blessed by your singing. Thank you very much. And um, uh, we, we love you so much. It's such a privilege to serve here with you guys. And um, with that said, let's jump into what I want to share with you this morning. Um, one of the things that's happened in the church in the last hundred years uh, is uh, the art of preaching has become such a big thing. And those of us who've been to school to study theology and all, one of the things that most of us also take is classes on preaching. And uh, you have experienced much of that because most of you at Carpenter's Way have laughed about it. You know, three points and a joke and maybe a slide. And uh, I, don't, I don't do that. I do verse by verse, which is a little different. You can still do that verse by verse, but that's not my style. But the problem with three points and a joke and then a prayer is that you often miss what's really going on. And I want to remind you that this book we're studying, Romans, is a letter. It was a letter by Paul to believers that he had predominantly never met in Rome. There was a few people he knew that he had met on, the tra on his travels, but most of them he did not know. And he was writing to the religious community, the Christian community, followers of Jesus. Little Jesuses, as they were mocked, they were followers of the way, is what they were called. The way being Jesus. He was writing to them because, well, let me, let me give you an example. Julie and I love, like many of you, we love to watch shows about uh, 
house fixing upping. Fix, fixing upping? <laughs> Renovation. Thank you, my, my darling wife. Uh, did that really move you? I'm going to write Joel and tell him, call her darling. She'll love that. But uh, Julie sits here. In case you don't get to see her, she corrects me nonstop while I preach. But it is. A, but home, home shows where they flip a home, we love those. And, you know, the beginning of the shows, they're all kind of the same. And the beginning kind of tells you, you know, Demo Day. If you remember, you know, that was a big thing. I got a, I got a hat that says Demo Day and, and we all, a coffee mug. And uh, we, we love that. But most of the show is them rebuilding it, right? And, and in fact, they don't show a lot of the, uh, of, the, of the wall being built. What they show you is the decorating part. Oh, I want to do this in colonial or I've decided to do this in English chic. Uh, Julie loves this stuff. Because she likes to decorate, and she's really, really good at it. She, uh, we have a, uh, we've been married a long time. We've been married and dating for 38 years. That's a long, I know. Somebody said, wow. Can you believe I put up with her? Because I know that's what you're thinking. But it's Pastor Appreciation Month, not First Lady Month, okay? Show me some love. So, um, but it is so funny because... She'll ask questions. This is one of the guys, you're going to get this. It's like, uh, hey, Mark, what do you think of this? And now after all these years, I'm like, I don't care, honey. Whatever you do is going to be gorgeous because it is. Because usually what happens is when I give her my opinion, she does the opposite anyway. Because I think she asks now after all these years, I think she actually asks to find out what the right way is by not going with my thoughts. <laughs> but I'll tell you, we've had some laughs through the years. There was a season in, so we've been, we've been all over the place with decorating through our, our marriage. But there was a season where one year was the chicken, right? That was, it doesn't matter. I'm just thinking there was a chicken one year, right? It was like you put chickens, there was decorated chickens, and so you want chicken. Then the next year was a, a cow. Yep, it was the year of the cow, and so there had to be a cow picture. Or, and then one year we even had a deer. A, a, not a real deer, guys. We're talking about a deer about this big, but it was decorating, and Hobby Lobby was selling it. And we, we just, but so it, it changes, because Julie's not really interested as a decorator in, I mean, she is, but it's not really what's behind the wall that matters to Julie. That, that work is done, and then she goes to work, just like you see on these decorating shows. Uh, what she cares about is how it looks at the end, the outward, the outward expression of it. But boy, if that, if that wall isn't sturdy, if, that, if the two-by-fours are not in the right place, and I have a, I have a home that was built in 1967, um, and uh, they didn't have all the same rules we had today. And there's an add-on room to our house that's kind of a, that's a guest room now. And there's not two by four on 16 inches like most of the time. There's like, I don't know what they did. All I know is if you come into my house, so when I go to hang something like a TV, which is my job, when I go to hang stuff, I have to, I have to send Julie out of the room because only the Holy, and, Holy Spirit and I need to be alone because I, for the life of me, cannot find the two-by-four. There's a place in my garage. Okay, I'm giving you a little too much information. There's a place in my garage, if, you ever, if you're ever able to see my garage, that I've got stuff hanging on because if you took those things off the wall, there's 16 holes. I could not find the two-by-four. And, and about five in, Julie's standing there, and I, I remember, I mean, I... I'm saved by grace through faith alone. But I looked at Julie, and she'll tell you, I said, you better go in the house because there's something about to come out of my mouth that you will never want to hear me preach again. 16 holes in the wall. And I didn't find one stud. Well, there was one stud there. But it was just 
So you all know what I'm talking about. I mean, do you know, do you know that I'm, and my dad's got to be laughing because while he was working and my brother was helping him as a kid, I'd be eating chips watching TV. <laughs> but, but do you know that on a tape measure, it actually tells you where the studs are supposed to be? Did you guys, you guys all knew that but me? You're not just pretty faces and good singers. You know a lot. I got to tell you something. There's not one of my walls that has studs where they're supposed to be, except for me. But beside that, these things, but you know what? When she decorates, that's... <laughs> so besides that, now let me get back to my point. Besides that, the truth is that, that we figured it out. Most of our house has, has got wood paneling in it, so it's, they put you know, quarter-inch plywood behind it so I can hang anything anywhere. But, but there is, and I didn't know that at first, but, but what is interesting is you want those studs there if the house is going to be strong. And we did some renovation a few years ago, and actually our wood is from old Temple Inland, from the 60s. I don't know what you guys did with that wood. Some of you worked there then. But it's kind of orangish. And I'm telling you, I keep breaking saw blades on that stuff. So I'm not worried. I mean, seriously, it is the craziest thing. But it's really strong. You would never know that if you go into a house. One of the complaints right now, not in East Texas, but around the country is that houses were so high marketed last year and the year before that they were put up cheaply. And so now those houses are beginning to decline very, very quickly because what? The houses are beautiful. I mean, they look like Waco, right? They, they, look, they, they look like those houses designed, they're all the same style, but they're made really cheaply. And on the outside, they're beautiful, but on the inside, they're not standing strong because the inside matters. And it's the same with theology, the problem with a lot of Christians today, and the reason I believe we are not in love with Jesus, the point is because we are in love with not going to hell. And I'm thankful for Billy Graham and D.L. Moody. You hear me quote them? But their goal as evangelists was to get people to respond to the good news of the gospel in a short period of time. And so questions were asked, things like, you don't want to go to hell, do you? To which everybody said no. Well, then pray this prayer as we sing this song, and you won't go to hell. And then the problem was, we never discipled those people, or they weren't interested in being discipleship. I'm not I'm laying blame, but the tr what, what we've ended up with is, is a church that thinks that she's theologically deep, that her two-by-fours are in the right place, because the decor is beautiful. In a traditional church, it's beautiful. In a contemporary church, maybe the drama and the music is beautiful, but the decor is nice different shades in different churches, but underneath the walls, there are very few studs. And so it's made the church shaky. And Paul was concerned about that when he wrote this letter. These were people that had a great reputation for following Jesus, but he wanted to make sure that they understood exactly what happened to them. And it's really, really important if we are going to fall in love with Jesus, that we know what happened. Because the bad news is worse than you could ever possibly imagine. Back to our text. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God at work. It saves everyone who believes. The Jew first, and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by what? Can we read that line? Let's try this. Let's read this line together. This is accomplished from start to finish 
That's important. As the Scripture says, read with me, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So you all know that? Most of you do. If you grew up in an Assembly of God or Baptist church, we all know that. But I'm not sure we understand the depth of how in trouble we are, whether you've ever used drugs or had sex outside of marriage. I don't think any of us realize just how in trouble we are without this grace and mercy through faith that we receive. Everything that Paul is going to teach us about salvation is winked at in these two verses I read. This letter is about the good news centered on Christ and the work the Trinity does to save us from the ravages of our sin nature and make us right with God. That's the purpose. If, you, if, if nothing else rings out in your mind for the rest of your lives from this series, it is that the purpose of salvation was not primarily to keep us from hell, but actually to make us right with God. Hell is the condemnation place. It is, it is where God's judgment is inflicted upon those who reject Him. It's a location. It's not the problem. And we, in our evangelism, we have begun to believe that Hell is the issue, and I want to make it aware, you aware. Hell isn't the issue, and you will see this as we go through Romans. The issue is God and man have been separated since the Garden of Eden. And God's goal was not to keep us from judgment, but to actually to bring us into relation with Him. That is His goal. Ephesians 1.5 says His unchanging plan was to bring us to Himself so that we could be adoptable. That's the purpose of this. And everything else you have been taught as we go verse by verse through Scripture, sections of Scripture about you don't want to go to hell, do you? While that is true, it's not the point. And when you don't understand that God so deeply and badly wants a relationship with you, whether you are a Jew in 500 uh, B.C. or you are a Gentile in 2023, that God's passion is relationship. And he has done through Jesus and then the work of the Holy Spirit whatever it takes to make that relationship possible if you want it. So while the church makes it about sin, and I get that, sin is the thing that separates us from God. It is not ultimately the problem. The problem is relationship with the Creator God. Does that make sense? That's what salvation solves, the relational problem. In fact, in, in verses, uh, and so in chapter 1, Paul starts the conversation about soteriology or salvation by helping us understand the problem, the bad news. And so that's what we studied two weeks ago in Romans 1, 18 to 23. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who do something. What do they do? They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Take note that God is angry at those who suppress the absolute, undeniable truth about him. Verse, eight, verse 19, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Remember, I said a minute ago, the problem with people is not sin. That's what separates us from God. The problem is people with people is, every man and woman since the Garden of Eden, is our relationship with God. And so you can know that there's a God by creation, and that's what Zach taught us last week, a super important Sunday. 
how because he explained how God has introduced himself to every human ever born so that we can have a relationship with him. When, when we read this too often, we go, well, creation doesn't tell me how to get saved. No, but creation begins the process of you knowing that God exists and has made himself known. You see, if it's just about sin, then you and I can walk through life and go, well, general revelation. That's what Zach called it. General revelation is creation, the stars, the sun, the things around you, a general moral compass of people. I've told you before, if you want to know why, why atheists still believe in a moral lawgiver, slap them and steal their purse and run off. They will call the police. Why will they call the police? Because they believe in moral law. And if there's a moral law, somebody has to decide or have set in our hearts what moral law is. Well, that's the American government. Well, if you do this in India, the same thing's going to happen. If you do it in Africa, if you do it in Russia, if you're in Russia, if you're in Moscow this morning, and you find an atheist, a Soviet atheist, an old man who doesn't believe in God, and you slap him and steal his wallet, he's still going to call the police on you. He's still going to say, that's not right. And when you say, why not? He's going to say, because it's wrong. And if you ask, why is it wrong? It just is. You see, even moral law is a general revelation. What does it reveal? The existence of a lawgiver. So also that, as well as, as Zach had talked last week about the Scripture, which says even the fact that governments exist are proof of God being a God of order and not chaos. When those governments are righteous, the, the nation is blessed. When they're unrighteous, bad stuff happens. God gives us governing authorities to do right so that good things, organization, can happen. That's called general revelation. And in Zach's message last week, and you should go back and listen to it if you weren't here, because it's very, very important. Remember, we're trying to put the two-by-fours behind the wall. You may say, I don't care about that. You should, because it answers a question. What does general revelation do? It tells me that there's somebody bigger than myself, and boy, if I'm smart, I want to know who that is. If I hear that in my neighborhood there's a black panther walking around, uh, we, had that, uh, we had somebody from Beaumont. Uh, the, yesterday people were asking on Facebook what happened to him. There was somebody, I don't, I don't remember the crime, but he ended up uh, on, you know, outside of Huntington. I'm sorry, you may know more than I do. But basically, uh, there's a guy in town. Everybody wants to know if he got caught. You know why we want to know if he got caught? Because he's here. And the truth is, that's how general revelation is. Nobody knows what the guy looks like. It gave a description of his age and stuff, but they don't have a picture. And the truth is, we're kind of nervous because he's there. That's how it is with create general revelation. You're aware that he's there, and it should make you nervous. If he's there, I want to be his friend. I remember that in fourth grade. I always wanted to be best friends of the big guy. Unfortunately, he was usually hitting me. But I know you all think I was a nerd. It's true. Then Zach went on to say, but general revelation doesn't tell you about your need for salvation. General revelation tells you that there is somebody bigger than you, and you should find out who that is. Then there's special revelation. And special revelation, Zach taught us, actually tells us about our need for God. It is special. It is specific. I think he called it peculiar. Is that the word? Particular revelation. And it involves things like the prophets in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. Jesus himself is special revelation. God himself came down in the Old Testament as well as the New on, the, on, Mount, on Mount Sinai. 
That was special revelation to Moses so Moses could tell the people about God. He introduced himself to them. He introduced himself to the king of Egypt by way of, uh, or Pharaoh, by way of his, his difficult works. And Moses explained who he was and told Pharaoh how to be right with God. But many of the prophets of the Old Testament wrote things down, and we now have the Scriptures. The Scriptures are special revelation. I loved, I think my favorite line of last week's message was when Zach said, today we hear people going, I know that the Bible tells me about God, but I want to hear from God myself. And Zach said, if you want to hear God's voice, play the Bible on audio. We are unsatisfied. We want more and more and more when you have everything you need. And I, he read that verse in 1 Peter. That's, I think it's 1 Peter that says you have everything you need for godliness. It's in front of you. Most of us have like seven. Even if you've never picked up a Bible, most of you have one in your house. And if you don't, you have one on your phone. They're there. But we avoid it. And that's how we know God. Why do we avoid it? Because we went to VBS and we got saved from hell. And that's all we're worried about. But you don't fall in love with Jesus by being saved from hell. You fall in love with God by getting to know God. And God throughout history, and that's what was great about last week's message, has been doing everything in his power to introduce himself to us. In fact, every time you go outside, you are reminded of the existence of God. It's a beautiful day. Praise God. It's a lousy day. Praise God. We have rain today. We, we don't, it doesn't rain anymore. But whatever. <laughs> praise God. Because God is, exists, and you can see that. When Kevin Hudson looks in my heart, I, I, I'm sure that it's old news now, but he should go, man, God did that. It's amazing what God has done. He's introduced himself to us. So if you were not here last week, you need to get, go back and listen to it. Romans 1.21. Here we go. Uh, and then I'm going to bring you up to speed and we'll get done by 11. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. That's what made God angry. God actually doesn't say in this verse that he's angry at our sin or our wickedness. He's angry that we've denied God, that we haven't given him his place. This is super important to understand chapter 2 this morning. The, the world is at war with God or God is at war with them because they haven't bowed the knee and given him his rightful place as the sovereign one. Whether they love him or hate him, they haven't done that. And they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God. That's a huge line. Or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Some translate that as became depraved. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worship idols that look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. It's important again. The problem that angered God was not sin necessarily or specific immoralities, but why they were acting out sinfully. That's what ticked him off. And so Paul lays out God's response to their rejection of him in verses 24 to 32. So because they didn't keep him in his position of God, because they didn't bow the knee, because they didn't let him rule, he abandoned them. Or it could have been translated, turn them over to do whatever shameful things are desired. As a result of God turning them over to their desires, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Well, what did they do? They traded the truth about God for a lie. Please take note. The, we, today, when you hear preachers talk about this text or when you read it, we immediately go to homosexuality. Yeah, gross. Ooh, look at that. Same-sex attraction. Depravity. Wait. 
That's the result of the problem. Really, really, really super important. If you want a, if you want a house that has two-by-fours built by Temple Inland in 1967 like I have, if you, want people, if you want the tree to fall but not dent more than the exterior, then this is how your faith gets firmly planted. The problem is not the ramifications of sin, the decor of sin. The problem is, why are we sinning? And that is because God is not on the throne of our lives. And that's what angered God. As a result of that, they did vile things, degrading things with each other's body. Well, what did they do? They traded the truth about God for a lie. What did it look like? They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of all eternal praise. Amen. I want to remind you where, where you know something like this happening. At the base of Mount Sinai, when Moses was up there talking with God, longer than the people thought he should, while they still see the smoke and the fire, they make a golden calf something that looks like animals, and they called it their deliverer. That's what this looks like. And you and I laugh at that story because it's like, how dumb can you be? Well, the answer is sin makes you stupid. It makes you depraved. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. What else does this look like in real time? Even the women turned against natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things they should never be done. Their lives become full of every kind of wickedness. Okay, so pause. Now, this is usually where pastors today stop because uh, the church seems to be at war with homosexuality. And I want to be clear. We're not at war with same-sex attracted people or adulterers or liars or thieves or communists or socialists or Democrats or Republicans. The church is not at war with anybody. The church is about telling the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that your problem is not what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. That's the problem. And we got to get back to that because we're fighting the wrong war on Facebook. Churches all over this country today are fighting the wrong war. If you want to know what it looks like to outlaw sin, ask the Jews after they got God's first five books. Tell them not to do these things. They were constantly doing them. You see, you can't litigate morality and you can't liter litigate a changed heart. So, verse 29. Uh, let's see. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them. That is scary. I, of all the things said in this, you do not want God to abandon you. Okay? It says that the rain falls on the righteous as well as the wicked. That is a scary thought to think that the gracious, merciful God who still lets fish um, in the sea and cows procreate after all we've done so that we can have a steak or a burger... It's incredible. It says that he abandoned them to their foolish thinking. And he let them do things that should never have been done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. What are the acts that are the direct result of depraved thinking? Please take note. He's done talking about homosexuality here. It's sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, Malicious behavior and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. <laughs> Sounds to me like a Baptist annual meeting. <laughs> they invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. Oh, that's not, that's not the result of depravity. That's just kids being kids. Uh, according to this, 
Disobedience to parents is depravity. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless. And they have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. Wow. Basically, this is what it looks like when the world refuses to bow the knee to God. He turns them over to their own whims and desires and flesh, which pretty much is the way the chaotic world looks today. They, most Christians, and I haven't done a percentage, but I think many Christians or moralists think, after they read this, get them, God. Get them. You are so stupid, Hollywood. Those people in Washington, D.C., they're going to get exactly what they deserve and good for God. Which is exactly what Paul wanted you to think when he wrote this. And I got to tell you something. I, unlike Chad, no longer watch preachers because my TV cannot handle my shoe being thrown at it anymore. (laughs) This passage, to anybody who's read more than the first chapter, is setting up the second set of bad news, which is even worse than the first. You see, chapter one isn't just explaining why the world is chaotic. It's setting up chapter two because He knows that his moralistic religious readers are now all going, thinking exactly what you do. Man, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. They, they, they. And so chapter 2 begins with this. You may think you can condemn these people, but you're just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God in His justice will punish everyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the very same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they've done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after glory and honor and immorality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves. Please notice, not those who are gay, not those who are adulterers, not those who are whatever, fill in the blank, but those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and live lives of wickedness instead. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God doesn't show favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they, had never, uh, they, had, uh, they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by the law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right with God. Are you freaking out yet? <laughs> That's not what my Baptist preacher said. It's not what my Assembly of God preacher said. This is scary. And he's not done. 
Even Gentiles who do not have God's uh, written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ Jesus, oh, this is scary. This last line, the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Let's just ignore that. Let's just erase that from the Bible. Because I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I do not want my secrets exposed. Because they are there, baby. And you know what I'm talking about. This is a tough text. The problem with many Jesus followers in Rome that we'll be reading about in Paul's letter, including some Jews who claim to be followers of Jesus, there were Jesus-following Jews there, was that they were not in love with Jesus as much as moralists or legalists who find joy in screaming judgment on people because of their sinful behavior. When the outward sin isn't really the problem anyway. Again, it's the outward decor. We yell at the decor, and it's not the decor that's eventually going to have the house fall. It's why, it's, it's what's inside. Even today, having this whole letter, which includes a clear statement that there is none righteous, not one. You know, remember that verse? You learned it in school, in, in Sunday school. There is no one righteous, not one. Many Christians still look at Romans 1 as a, as a conversation of homosexuality when the real issue is, according to Romans 1, their refusal to honor God with their lives, to give Him respect, submission, and obedience His position deserves. It is because of that that they are turned over to their depraved thinking, and that's where the world is today. If we outlaw homosexuality, lying, murder, oh, I forgot, that was outlawed already. Do you understand what the world's answer is right now to illegalities? They want to reduce the people being thrown in prison by getting rid of the laws. You can laugh. That's silly. It doesn't change their behavior. It just changes their location. And the world, that's the world's answer. Instead of trying to figure out that the broken family or what the root of all these issues are, the world's answer is let's just make less things illegal. I tell you what, let's not arrest people for that illegality. You know, then we've decided what is a violent crime versus a nonviolent crime. I mean, if you're only robbed at gunpoint and they take $100,000, they shouldn't go to jail as if they shot you in the face and then took your $100,000. That's how crazy our world is today. And that's depraved thinking. In the church, it's the same thing, though. There are many in the church that because God's declaration of sin, Romans 1, offends them, the church, many churches, the United Methodist Church right now, is in a huge debate over whether or not we should just change the definition of sin. Then people won't be so mad. As if we're deciding what sin is and what sin not. What offends God and what doesn't. That tells me that the United Methodist Church, in its core, doesn't believe in God or the sovereign one. You see, the United Methodist Church has the exact same problem as the people in chapter 1. Why? Because they're not bowing the knee to God. You see, if I'm a United Methodist today, and we're debating whether or not homosexuality or same-sex relationships or sex outside of marriage is a sin or not, I don't get together with my counsel to figure it out. I get to the Word. Why? Because that's God's special revelation to me. 2 Timothy tells me, it tells me what's true. And for those of you watching online and for those of you in this church, let me be very, very clear. 
Sin is not up for grabs whether anybody ever attends Carpenter's Way again. I'll have to find another job, but I will never walk away from God's Word. So for those of you who know that I'm not a good Baptist, it's because the Baptists are wrong on some stuff. I, I, don't, I don't mean that I'm right and I'm super smart, but I'm on the search. And that's what we're doing here. We're searching the Scriptures to discover truth, to make sure that the two-by-fours behind the decorations of our church are solid, are not blown around by every wind of doctrine. And this is why you've got to know this stuff. Not just Romans 3.23, not just Romans 6.23, but the whole enchilada. Every little piece. Let me tell you a story. You know the story. I'm going to read it to you. Mark chapter 10. And it really explains chapter 2 for you. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commands since I was a little boy. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. Now let's pause for a second. I don't want you to misunderstand what Jesus is doing here. This, while taught often as uh, encouragement to give away your wealth, that's not really what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is there's one thing you haven't done. You've kept the 10. Good for you. But there's one thing I want to know. Will you obey me no matter what I ask? That takes you back to Romans 1, which was the sin, right? If God walked in here today and identified himself and we saw the scars in Jesus and he said, I want all of you to give it all away, you should give it all away. Now, if I tell you to give it all away, you shouldn't give it all away. But if Jesus tells you to give it all away, give it all away. Anybody in question about that? If Jesus tells you to walk on hot coals, we're going to go back to special revelation. First of all, that's not going to happen. But if Jesus tells you to pick up your cross and follow him, then you pick up your cross and follow him. Unless, of course, it's optional in your own personal theology, meaning that you really don't bow the knee to God. You bow the knee to self. Are you guilty yet? Like every one of us? See, the problem with trusting God, it shows that I don't really trust God. I've told you before, I'm a worrier. What does that say about my doctrine? So now, when I worry, I try to give it to God. But that's the process. You see, the problem with Romans chapter 2 isn't that they were acting out in homosexuality or that they were stealing or robbing. The problem is they were doing exactly what the world did, only with a fish on their bumper. I got cut off by somebody with a fish on their bumper the other day. I, I don't have a Carpenter's Way sticker on my car for a reason. <laughs> No, I, I didn't. I just laughed and prayed for their souls. <laughs> Seriously, are, are you guys following me? Yeah. I mean, you get what I'm saying here? It's, it's not the decor that is the problem, whether it's gayness or a bad attitude. Because what we're offending is God. Well, one's worse, or worse for a culture. We're not talking about what's better or worse for a culture. We're talking about God here. We're talking about why Paul isn't ashamed of the good news in Christ. Because we need it really bad. 
And he wanted these self-righteous followers of Jesus. And I'm not saying it's all of them, but some of them, especially probably the Jews who felt really good about the Ten Commandments and being a follower of Jesus, their Messiah, they probably thought, well, we're not breaking, just like this guy. Okay, so, so let's go back to this. So, uh, Lord, I've obeyed all these commands. There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. Now, this is the point, what's about to be said. The point of the story isn't that he walked away. That tells you that he wanted morality without Jesus. Do you see that? If he wanted Jesus, he would have said, I'm already done. Will you help me sell my property? I tell you what, give it away. But he doesn't want Jesus. He wants heaven, morality, Judaism, everything God offers except surrender. That's why he left dejected. And the disciples are freaked out. It amazed them. But Jesus said again, it's hard for a rich man to enter, uh, it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. To which all of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s remember messages on what is the eye of the needle. Can we ever study something less important? I don't really care if it's a gate on the wall. I'm sorry, Gary, don't be disappointed in me. I don't care if it's a gate on the wall in Jerusalem or an illustration of a camel going through the eye of a needle. All I know is Jesus is saying, it's really, really hard to be saved. That's the point. And guys like me like to distract you with silly little debates. Keep reading. Verse 26, here we go. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were now astounded. So they went from being amazed to astounded. In fact, they're so astounded they can't keep their silly little human mouths shut. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them. What's that word? So Jesus is doing his thing. He's, he's, making, he's milking a cow. And he's talking. He's gone. Rich man, eye of the needle, talking. And then they say, well, then who can be saved? Jesus drops those things. I'm not going to say the word because you'll look at me weird. And he looks at them intently. And he says the most important thing the New Testament teaches underneath salvation. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But not with God. You see, with God, everything is possible. My cheerleader, tumbling friends who have that on a t-shirt, Burn that shirt. It's misusing Scripture. We're talking about how a person has a relationship with God, and you can't do it on your own. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be moral enough. You'll never obey enough of the law. Every time you say, I've never committed adultery, just like at the, uh, uh, at the Beatitudes, Jesus is going to whisper in your ear, have you ever lusted? Whenever you say, but I haven't killed, have you hated? I'll tell you what, if you've ever called somebody a fool, my father considers that as murder. Well, who can do that? No one. No one. And that's the point. The point is, no one can do it. I don't have time this morning to reread you all of Romans chapter 2, but it's pretty clear we're in trouble. And I remind you that it ends with the same trouble. If you just read Romans 1 and 2, you have to be thinking this morning that I may not be saved. Except 
that this is the bad news before the good news, and it was written as a letter without chapter breaks. See, you're supposed to jump into chapter 3 where the news gets really, really good. And I really wanted to this morning leave you with a cliffhanger so that next week you would come back and lean forward and go, well, pastor, I I know I prayed the prayer and I believe I'm saved. Do you think I could lose my salvation? I I wanted you to be terrorized for a week of your life so you'd study. But I know that I'll never see some of you again or you're watching online. So let me remind you again, and no, I'm going to make you work here, buddy. I want you to put Romans 1.17 up there. It's towards the end. There it is. You are amazing. We got a teenager up there doing this. The good news, and I'm going to change it as I told you in my own version of the Bible, the really, 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 really outrageously overwhelming, unbelievable good news tells us how God, who? God makes us right in His sight. Paul has already given the answer to us freak out, freaked out Christians and the freaked out world. This is accomplished, what? Making us right in his sight? <coughs> Excuse me. From start to finish, by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So not only, why do I bow the knee to God? Because when I see that there's a creator, and I look up there and say, I better get to know who created it, whether it's alien or God, whatever you want to call him, And I find out that I've fallen short of his expectations since my great-great-great-great-grandparents Adam and Eve did. How do I make it right? How do I fix this? Is there a fix? And Paul writes this letter. You're not going to believe how good this news is. The problem is, you and I grew up with the concept of sin. If you went to an Assemblies of God church, a Pentecostal church, or a Baptist church, we've been telling you that your problem is sin all along. And I'm here to tell you, sin isn't your problem. Sin isn't the problem of Hollywood or Washington, D.C. It's a relationship with God is the problem. And that can only be solved by God himself. That's why he sent Jesus. That's the soteriology. That's the two by four. The fact is that it's not about sin. And too many of you and I spent most of our our lives every Sunday hearing a pastor tell me to stop sinning. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. All that did was send me underground with porn. I started living a lie. I was angry. I was scared. And I was self-pleasing. And now I realize it's not about what I'm doing. It's about who I'm in relationship with. Do I bow the knee to God? And something amazing has happened. As I have fallen in love with God because I'm understanding his mercy and grace for a guy like me. I don't even have time to worry about DC right now. The more I realize what a wretched sinner I really, really am in my secret lie nature, the more amazed I am at God's mercy and his grace and the more I just want to drop that stuff and follow him. You see, every time a pastor mounts the pulpit or a Sunday school teacher and tries to get you to stop sinning, they are still putting your eyes on you when they should be putting it on God. Sin is a problem, but only as far as it tells you who you're bowing the knee to. You see, we look at the world and go, you're too gay, you're too gross, you're too rebellious. Look how stupid they are when inside the church we've got the same junk going on, only we're better at hiding it. And I'm here to tell you that the only one who knows it just declared in this chapter that he's going to expose our secret sins. And this was never about that anyway. You're already a sinner. The good news is through faith you can be saved through Christ alone. You don't have to be a Baptist. You don't have to be Catholic, Christian. You just need to know you're a sinner. And the God of the creator of the universe sent his son to die for you and that he offers you redemption. Redemption.
And I want to give a warning to my Mormon friends here. I like Mormonism. I was tempted by it in high school. I know that just freaked many of you out. Just take a breath. I like it because it's moral and attractive and it fits my personal fleshly agenda. The problem is, my problem is not one with morality and the country and the culture. My problem is one with God, and Mormonism doesn't answer that. All it tells you is how to be a good Mormon. And if our problem since the Garden of Eden was not being a good Mormon, then Mormonism would solve it. The problem with Buddhism or Confucius is not that it's dumb or doesn't offer anything. It's just that it doesn't solve your relationship with God problem. The problem with Baptist doctrine isn't that it doesn't, it's, it's not good for community and it's not a wonderful place to be on Sundays and if you, don't, if you like that kind of music and stuff. The problem isn't that. The problem is that Baptist without Jesus at Central doesn't get you saved. It just makes you a nice white person. Seriously. It makes you a good Republican and patriot. And that's not the problem. That's not the underwall problem. That's a decor problem. And if we're so busy trying to solve the decor problem, then we're going to have a house that is falling down. And I submit the church to you today, the house of cards is falling. Why? Because we never built a healthy home based solely on Jesus. And that's Paul's concern in this text. And it's what the world does, and it's often what the church does. Because the only answer to this world that is, in fact, going to hell in a handbasket is Jesus Christ. And you can only have him through faith. Because a rich, good man can't even get himself through the eye of a needle, let alone into the kingdom of God. So I tell you this morning, Romans 10 says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, forgiven, adopted. But it has to be done by faith. I believe you are my only answer. I believe I'm in trouble. I agree with you that sin's a problem. And now I bow the knee to you. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you for your word that doesn't return void, for this text that's abundantly clear if we understand it within its concept and its context. And I ask you, Father, that we will not bow the knee to anyone but you alone not to our church, not to our pastor, not to our culture, not to our political party, not to our moralism, but may we bow the knee to you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study will start in 10 minutes. Next week's going to be a great weekend. Plan on joining us.